So I want to speak to you this morning on four things that God wants for us. Four things that God wants for you and for me. And uh, I, just, I just got to come right out and say, I'm going to talk about money. But I'm not talking like the salesman, the televangelist who's setting you up because there's another something that God wants from you. What I love about the gospel is it just overwhelms us with this reality. God doesn't need anything from us, although He desires things from us. He desires our maturity. He desires our obedience. He desires desires our worship and affection. He loves hearing our prayers. But all of this is merely a reflection or, or an overflow of the stuff that God wants for us. And it's so important. We don't start there that in the gospel, God is for us in Jesus. And if God is for us, it can sound so cliched, that little Bible verse, who can be against us? And Romans 8 just makes it clear that this God who conquered sin, death, the grave, shame, is so for us in Jesus. And it's not just like we reconcile to God. It's like our older brother, our heavenly high priest in the heavens, ever lives to make intercession for us. He is for us in the heavens. Just pause a moment and let the joy of that Hit your joy center. I mean, it is just magnificent that, uh, that Jesus is praying prayers for us in the heavens, for our progress, for our maturity, for our obedience. He is for us. And so I want to speak to you from First uh, Timothy. And uh, a bit of background, it's a letter written to this young pastor, Paul's kind of protege, who he spent loads amount of time coaching and, uh, and, uh, and discipling. And he's got this unusual burden of leading as a younger guy a church that has exploded and is mushrooming, and it's like, it's like that can be a huge amount of pressure. And he's telling him all in chapter 1 around, make sure you put the gospel at the center. You know, we're not better than anyone he tells Timothy that, uh, that uh, Timothy, just remember about me. He shares his testimony. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the absolute worst. What's he doing to Timothy? He's teaching him, don't come and project this nonsense that you're better than everyone else. You just, you're like me, a billboard of God's mercy. God did this, rescued me, the worst of sinners, that he might put on display his unlimited patience and kindness for those who yet to believe. So it's, a, it's like this gospel introduction, and then it's all about, you know, prayer and governments and qualifications for leadership. And it's like all the stuff that we need to know to be a faithful presence in a broken world as a church and how to lead in that context. But it's almost like he gets to chapter 6, and he says, oops, I better just coach Timothy around this last thing uh, that he needs to get a handle on, and we're going to see if we can pick it up because uh, uh, it's, it's, it's quite a challenge for him. And so in verse, uh, in verse 6, he's also addressing the false teachers who are thinking like, preach the word to get big offerings, that sort of prosperity nonsense where, you know, your spiritual, all that you have, your wealth that you've accumulated is an evidence of your spirituality. Like, and he says, no, 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 that's not how it works. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment 
is great gain. Let me say that again. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can, can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then I've left out the next passage, but that summarizes this. Timothy, it's not just you've got to teach this to the Ephesians. He says, I'm asking you as a leader in this to, to flee. So I can't stand up here and say this is something like we dish up for our congregation. He has leaders who are involved in stewarding the gospel. Uh, this is a message. He says, Timothy, I want you to flee this stuff. And then he says, and I'm charging you. So there's a flee command and there's a charge because we need to be modeling this uh, freedom, this sense of, uh, of, of economic spaciousness. We need to live in the security of this, uh, which we'll explain a bit more first. And so just in case some of us are leaders, we're leading life groups or whatever, as we think this is like something that everybody else needs. No, he's, he says, Timothy, you need to get this, this stuff right in your life. So Sue, warning you, a budget is not a target. It's something you've got to live within. Okay. And then he says this, and this is where, he, I mean, can you imagine, young leader, 20, 19 to 25, not sure the exact age, young leader leading this community in Ephesus. He says to him, command those that are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So, friends, if you do a little bit of an environmental scan around the state of the world and our nation, and like it's a daily, like it just, it's just very, very rocky, and I'm not wanting to preach us into any kind of despair, I'm actually wanting to take us north from that. But the world is probably, in my lifetime, never seen more broken than it is now in terms of, and just having come through COVID, I mean, if, you know, please, is there not, you know, is there not a break from all of this global uncertainty unless it's possible that God is wanting to shake everything that is shakeable, which is economies and governments and, you know, international, uh, you know, uh, tensions. All of that is highly shakeable. And it's interesting that into that first world, first century world, the early church exploded very similar fault lines, Roman Empire, persecution, confiscation of property among Christians, all kinds of stuff was, was going on, and the church flourished into the soft underbelly of the Roman Empire. It's a remarkable thing that, that the church is like a vine. It's, it's, it's a weed. It's hardy. If you know anything about vines, they, just, they can grow in rocky soil. We are designed to thrive 
in difficulty. And what Paul's telling Timothy and us through this passage is, I want to anchor you in the current storms and maybe even future storms. And uh, we don't know what the future holds, but I think Paul is laying some foundations in terms of what God wants for us so that we're not thrown. So this is more an anchoring word than a like an exciting, adrenalizing, charge the future word. This is an anchoring word. And uh, I hope you can feel that this comes from a real heart of love and real concern. You know, it's, it's difficult when your wife walks up in the middle of your message. Okay. So the key verse I want you to see there in terms of just heating up this central thought, the God is for us, is he's, he's, Paul is saying to Timothy, tell these guys to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Put your hope in God who richly provides us for every, with everything for our enjoyment. Does this sound like a God who's mean-spirited? Does this sound like a God who's short on resources? Does this sound like a God who's out to pleasure-proof our lives? You know, you read that one, only be content with food and clothing. Oops, can't I have a house and a car? Piano lessons for my kids. Does it sound like God is putting these terrible limits on us? Or is it possible that God is doing the exact opposite and saying, you can have everything in the world, you still won't be, have godliness and contentment unless you have me at the center of it all. And so out of this passage flows uh, four things that God wants for every class follower. And if you're still exploring the claims of Christ, this will settle some things around, uh, you know, when churches talk about money, it's really not because God is broke and His mission in the world is like really on the back foot and we need to come and rescue the creator of the universe that's loving toward all that he's made and sustains it by the word of his power. We just got to rescue him with our brief little contribution. Not, not at all. That's not in play. This is the God who is for us, whether we have crossed the line of faith or we're still exploring. He's drawing us to himself. And this is a little window into how God is for us. And I hope this blesses you like it does, it does me. So the first thing God wants for us from this text, I hope you can see this, God wants to upgrade our personal asset register. God wants to upgrade our personal asset register. But godliness, not the other stuff from these false teachers, but godliness with contentment is great gain. He's heating up something that is the equivalent of ultimate riches. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Where do we see it? For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take, and we can take, no, we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. What he's saying is, it doesn't take much to give you a contented heart if you've got godliness, God-centered life, that has given you an internal, personal peace. Now, folk, we're living in a, in a, in a culture where, <clears throat> where we continually, our contentment is continually under threat. Uh, I heard somebody years back say that advertisers, they know something about us. They, 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 I mean, I, I went into an APSA bank. I'm sorry to mention the name, but I went into a bank once, and in there was a big thing, and, and there's this picture of a person on an island drinking cocktails, and says, have Come and see us and, and get the holiday you deserve. 
I just found it amazing that Epson knew a whole lot about me, and this picture is inviting me into some amazing, unbelievable experience that was going to transform my life. But that's what advertisers do. They rob us of our self-respect, and then they sell our self-respect back to us at the price of the product. You start to love yourself more when you've bought what they think you really need. And if you say no to what they think you need, you, you're supposed to feel diminished. And, and uh, it shrinks your contentment. And that's a huge danger in our culture. And I think what Paul is wanting for us, and God through these words is wanting for us, is to just pause a little in all the noise and all the evaluation of, of what we're worth, what we think we're worth, and get back to the understanding that the riches that we have in Jesus, no money or advertising agency in the world can, can deliver to us. This comes to us by sheer scandalous grace, as we've sung about it so wonderfully this morning. It comes to us as a free gift of God in heaven. And so this call to godliness is a call to the God-centered life. Look up, not out. Look up. And, and feast on what we have in Christ and enjoy the contentment and the internal uh, soul satisfaction of what we have in and through the gospel. And there's a quote from Jonathan Edwards when he was 18 years old. He preaches this sermon on Christian happiness, and uh, it's entitled, Three Reasons Why Any Christian Can Be Completely Happy and Content. First, your bad things will turn out for good. If God is with you, then Romans 8.28 says he will find a way to walk you through all your bad things so that even those bad things will in many ways have good effects in your life and in your heart. Folk, we've seen it play out in the whole COVID thing. I'm not saying for everyone, but God can take hardship. We grow way more in a fiery furnace than we do in a jacuzzi. The only thing that grows in a jacuzzi is algae, I'm told. Okay, don't imagine that. This could unsettle you in the rest of the talk. But don't you just think it's beautiful? Godliness and contentment is great gain, so here's something that just can secure us. And even if you have a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, or a bad year, your bad things, God is committed to turning out for good. Can I have a yeah or an amen or whatever we do there or... Secondly, he says, your good things cannot be taken away from you. <sighs> what God gives us in Jesus sticks for eternity. Sonship, adoption, regeneration, justification by faith. And he even gives us in advance the promise of glorification. In other words, the way God views our salvation is so full and complete in Christ, whom he justified once and for all, he also has glorified. In other words, done deal in God's eternal mind. We get new heavens, new earth, new body. What you have in Jesus, can, you can never, ever lose. Can you lose stuff in COVID? Can you lose stuff in this life? Can you lose stuff in the day-to-day -day rhythms? Can you leave, lose things that are precious? Of course you can. We lose loved ones even. But what you have, can never, ever be taken away from you, the things that have eternal significance. What good things? You're adopted in the family. The Holy Spirit's been put into your life. 
and eventually going to transform you into that being so glorious, something far greater than your aspirations or anything you can even imagine you will be blah, blah, blah. blah. Let's leave it there. Thirdly, the best things are still to come. Okay. It's, it's amazing. Your bad things will turn out for good. Your good things can never be taken away. And the best things are still to come. I just think this is absolutely amazing. In a world like ours where we somehow get seduced into, uh, into uh, wanting to be satisfied by temporary things, the best is yet to come. And sometimes God needs to lift our sights above our disappointments and say, actually, there's a glorious, glorious future waiting for us. And so when Paul says these words in Second Corinthians, he says, when I see imminent death, it's a paraphrase, or torture, or 39 lashes imprisonment, it doesn't bother me. Of course, it hurts him and may even harm him temporarily, but he, it doesn't get to him ultimately because even those difficult, difficult things in this life are not ultimate. In eternity's glorious future, when we look back on our lives, which constitutes a little burp in eternity, we'll realize that uh, the beauties and the wonders of what we promised in God outlasted all. So the big point in God upgrading our asset register is right now, if your faith is in Jesus, you are richer right now than you could ever imagine. You are richer right now than you could ever imagine. And if you're new to exploring faith, you can be when this scandalous message of God's goodness in Jesus gets into you. Uh, it's like that coin. Sometimes it gets in, but it needs to get out as well when the penny, when the penny drops. And so we pray for that in your journey. The second thing that God wants for us is God wants to protect us. He's coming after us through this message. He wants to protect us from being trapped, trapped in the wrong cycle, whether we're rich or poor. You can see it there. There's this fatherly care coming through. Verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires. And, and, and Paul's not wanting to get rid of our desires. He's actually addressing disordered desires. These uh, desires that have gone wrong. And he's speaking about those harmful forms of desire that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Seems like God is, Father knows some things about us, and he wants to protect us from coming under money's power. And uh, here's an interesting thought. And I know I'm not getting invited back, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be bold enough to, to say, how would you know that you're trapped by a disordered love for money? How would you know that you're under the power of, of mammon, which Jesus ascribes some kind of personality to? He says, you cannot serve God, huge creator, and mammon, capital M, representing principality and a power that can can affect the way we live if we under it and we yield it and we worship at the wrong altar. So, here's some, here's some marks that may be helpful to know 
if you've got some homework, if you're needing to upgrade your asset register, use that sense of godliness and contentment on my true riches. And, and, and now I'm learning to, to have a nose for the money traps in my life. So how do you know we're under it? Number one, we're talking about it all the time. And folk, we're in the Egoli. We're in the city. We're in Cape Town. We're, we're in cities that are continually either on the upside celebrating all the abundance or when there's a fault line in the economy, everyone's complaining, whether it's in boardrooms or at bras. There's this sense of, of nervousness. But we're talking about it all the time, and I can't imagine that could be healthy, that we're talking about uh, the blessings and more than the blesser. Secondly, when we exaggerate its power, like the guys did in, in 1929 in Wall Street, and they saw their share price drop 12% in one day, another 13% a day later, and you're talking about fortunes being lost overnight on the stock exchange. And people began to jump out of windows and, and end their lives. And folk, when we exaggerate money's power, it's an identity issue. Your self-worth starts to plummet with your perception of your net worth. So when you think you're poor, you can have, you could be a Christian, you can think you're poor, but suddenly in our kind of climate, economic uncertainty, there's that sense in which our identity, who we are in Christ, gets confused with what we have. And we get a diminished sense of self-worth because we're too busy looking at our, our asset base, our share portfolio, or you know, what we have or don't have in, in, uh, for our pension plan. And for Sue and I, we're, I'm 67, Sue's like 30. It's, it's like you do. You start to think as you get older. You don't want to, you've got to be responsible. You've got to think. But we have to be very careful of, about the anxieties that go with that. And, folk, this is true for whether you are rich or poor. As a rich, rich person, you can be talking about it all the time. As a poor person, you can be talking about it. Rich people think money will solve all their problems. Poor people just imagine it. It's the same tyranny, it's the same deception. Thirdly, we know that we're under the power of money when it, when, it, when it affects, when it controls our choices. It's like when we want to buy something, it's simply, do I have the money in the bank? And it tells us. When, you, when you're living with godliness and contentment, there's a, there's a beauty in our fellowship and our partnership with God and the way we go around stewarding our resources isn't married to affordability. It's married to, to wisdom. Just because I could doesn't mean I should. And and that's why so many people get into debt. They, you know, they, they, they go after stuff just because it's as affordable in today's uh, income. doesn't mean it's a, it's, a, it's a wise thing. It controls our choices. Fourthly, it defines our identity. We've done that one, 1929. And, and finally, we experience, you know money, you're under the money's power when you experience overwhelming loss when you give it away. Sat with a guy a number of years back who said, you don't know how hard I work for my money. I can't give money to to the church or the other thing. I worked very hard for my money, and, and, and I, was, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. You know, I was sitting there thinking, okay. Um, so, you know, how do you think you got your money? Well, you got your education by sheer grace of God. You got the family you were born into. I mean, God's been sovereignly so good to you. And, uh, and then I realized a lot of people aren't, aren't 
don't, don't struggle with generosity because they are mean-spirited. They struggle because they're afraid. They're afraid of what am I going to lose, which tells them, tells us that our contentment is not based on what we have in Jesus. It's based on um, our, what, what, we, what, we, what we own. And then Paul gives us three uh, tips on how to avoid the money trip. We can't get into them. The first one is just contentment. Start celebrating what you do have and stop comparing upward or downward with what you don't have and, uh, and realize that uh, contentment is a, is a spiritual power in our lives when it's rooted in gospel reality. And Paul says when he writes to the Philippians, he says, I've, the, I've learned the secret. And you hear the word secret. Ooh, who wants to know the secret? Well, Paul says, I want to give you the secret. He says, I've learned the secret when I've got a lot or whether I've got a little. I can live across the board spectrum of having plenty or having little. I want to tell you the secret about my contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not, oh, I'm so thankful that when I'm about to write my exam to do matric, I'm going to use that verse. Oh, God, thank you that I can crack an A because you do all, you're going to give me all. all. It's got nothing to do with those short-term things. It's way bigger. Christ in your life can be a fountain of contentment no matter what your circumstance. He says, I want to give you that secret. It's God coming to us saying, I want to rescue. Secondly, grace. You need to understand the gospel. When you, when you continue, he says, I, I believe this stuff, Rigby, but I still struggle with anxiety. That's because the gospel has not got deeply, deeply enough into your heart, into your conviction base. We need to get the gospel deeper into us and really believe this, this stuff. And, uh, and uh, Jesus came into the world. Uh, the same world that Paul is describing to Timothy. Naked I came into the world. Naked I will go out. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's quoting Job. He's talking about this nakedness and vulnerability. And folk, here's the truth. And we all feel that from time to time. Jesus came into the world to clothe us. He wanted to clothe us, clothe us out of his vulnerability on the cross with righteousness, with promise, with assurance, with sustaining grace, so that uh, we're not living in that anxiety. And third one is simplicity. And it's not everybody's call to voluntary poverty, you know, food and clothing. Because then a few verses later he says, command those that are rich in this world. They don't, don't only have food and clothing. So there's a, it's, it's, it's not to do with what you own as much as what owns you. And I think I'm going to go on to the third one. What God wants for us. Drum solo. Where are you, Dan, when I need you? God wants a higher maturity for us. God wants a higher maturity for us as good stewards of his blessing. Command those who are rich in this present world, which is probably most of us in this room in terms of the South African context, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides, say that out loud, who richly provides. God is not passive around our 24-7 interactive relationship. He richly pr provides. But notice the, the stuff there he's calling, addressing, is not to be arrogant, nor to put our hope in wealth, but to put our hope in God. Now, it takes a kind of a maturity 
in, we, in the, these economic storms, uncertainty in the future, wonder what it's going to be like, anxiety down the road. You know, you don't want to import into today what's waiting for you in the future. So Paul is coming to Timothy today, and he's coming to us today, and he's saying God richly provides you with everything for your enjoyment. I find that fascinating. It's like God says, uh, don't, he doesn't say just don't be anxious. He says, I want to assure you that I'm a provider, and I richly provide for everything with your enjoyment, which isn't just survival stakes. It's like God says, I'm a kind, good father. And essentially, what I want to say, the big point here is when we put our faith in Jesus, we're not just like, you know, attending an economic wisdom class this morning. Now, there's an upward pull on our lives. God's pulling us upward. He says, I want to involve you, and I want to, I want to enlist you as a son and a daughter in my operating system. It's called Grace 1.0. The reason why there's no Grace 1.1 or 2.0 or 3.0 is that there's never, ever been any need for improvement in this. God has created the universe in His love. He sustains the universe in His love. He is so secure in Himself. And God is saying, I want you to put your hope in me. I want you to tether yourself to me. I want you to feast and feed off my sufficiency and my promises for you now, tomorrow, and for the rest of your life. I want you to know I'm your good, good father. But I'm not just wanting to secure you. I'm wanting to invite you to start to live in this reality where more grace is flowing from you than just to you. Maturity is about our lives becoming a riverbed of the grace of God. This grace that's rescued us, this grace that is just too good to be true, you'll never be more alive. You'll, ne you'll, be, you'll never be more animated by gospel reality than when we start to live lives where we're living for the benefit of others. I think you're doing so much of that right. I'm just giving you the, a little bit more of a biblical theological foundation to keep doing it, to do it more. For those at the fringes, to get in and say, that's it. It's worth considering. You know, you know why some people can't experience the grace of this operating system working through them? It's because our standard of living is beyond our standard of giving. It's just like everything is... And we can't get out of that. And somewhere along the line, we need to sit with somebody and say, help me to break that cycle where I am not at the center of my economic life. God is. And help me to live on less with contentment and godliness, not with sulking and scorning and scoffing, with, 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 uh, with godliness and contentment. Help me to live on less so that I can give more. That is evidence of real maturity. And, it's, uh, and there's grace for that. There's grace for that. Paul says to brand new Christians, in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, uh, let those who steal no longer steal. Talking about these, these thieving unbelievers that have now radically been converted to Christ. He said, let those who steal no longer steal. Let them work with their hands, get economically productive, that they will have something to share. I find that ridiculous. Paul, they were stealing because they didn't have anything to eat in that context. Slaves, etc., etc. Now you're saying, get a job, but surely you're getting a job now so that you can buy your own food 
And he doesn't. He says, no, when the gospel's got to him, you will be able to buy your own food. And then later Paul says, he gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Notice the order. He says, as you become economically active, God puts into our income stream both seed and bread. And I don't know what kind of stupid you've got to be as a farmer to eat your seed. I don't know how anybody can consider. And what Paul is arguing in the way he's saying, I want maturity in you. I want you to be mature. I want this grace operating system. It's not like you owe anyone anything because God wants more for you. But how's this for fatherly love and affection? He says, I'm going to invite you into the way I run the universe. I want to invite you to be part of a community that understands grace as a power for good in the world. And I want your life as you become this community of gospel reenactment where you all are nurturing and nudging one another on into this practice. The big point is right now we are being transformed into the image of Christ, which must include this uh, aspect of the agenda. Last point. Gee, I'm preaching way shorter than Doug preaches. I heard this. I asked him, how long do you preach? When does the meeting end? Anyway. I'm totally joyful and, and really just love being up here sharing this stuff with you, but I, I'm, 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 I'm hoping that your heart is tender Hoping your heart is your, your heart is, is wet cement before the Lord. Because this is transforming stuff. It's it's also so deeply securing and anchoring. But notice what he says. God wants to con or what, I, what what he's implying in this passage. The fourth thing he wants for us, he wants to convince us to invest offshore to secure the best possible returns. There's no project in front of you. We're not looking for you. He's, this is about laying the foundation. And you'll see that it's all about laying a foundation for right living. So he says to this young pastor, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up for themselves. For themselves. For themselves. God is saying to economically empowered people in our culture, in our day, in this church, in Cape Town, in Johannesburg, I want you to lay up for yourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they will take hold of the life that is truly life. Is it possible to live our brief little existence on this planet never having taken hold of the life that is truly life? It's possible, according to this passage. He's coming to rescue us from not having allowed these eternal perspectives to break into our life. How many fund managers, I know there's a few guys in the congregation involved in investments. Don't put your hands up. I, 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 just, I just had some cool conversations and I'm aware. But one of the things that the investment guys do is when the South African ran tanks, they get into hedge funds and they get a lot of that involves, you know, currency, you know, investing offshore. Jesse, you would know more about this than I do, man. What do I know? And you're an actuary. What do I know when you're in the front row? I'm intimidated, but here's the point. It's wise to do that, to preserve investments and, and uh, pension funds and all of that thing. It's not, it's, not, it's not sinful. It's not wrong. I think it's a wise thing to do. And, and I mean, God's coming to us with a, at a way higher level, and he says, I want to teach you 
what to do with what I've entrusted to you and your earnings and your wealth and whatever it is that you're stewarding. I says, I want, I want something for you. I want to give you a foundation in the coming age, and I want you to get a hold of a quality of life in this time that surpasses just biological life. I want you to get hold of eternal life in the here and now. Hebrews 16 and verse 5 describes us as those, Hebrews 13, Hebrews 6 and verse 5 describes us as those who've tasted of the powers of the coming age. The operating system of heaven is the coming age. It's the ultimate final reality. That's what lasts. Everything else burns. And what Paul's arguing, he says, I want some of how that happens. I want it to splash back into the way you live in your temporary life on this planet. Folk, we are not temporary beings in an eternal world. We know there's a new heavens and a new world, but that's, we are eternal beings in a temporal world that needs the second coming of Jesus to fix it all up. We have to remind ourselves though, that we are eternal beings. And Paul's coming hard after us in this teaching. And his big point is your future returns. Every time you steward your wealth into the forward movement of uh, uh, the church, every time we're getting behind gospel reenactment in terms of justice ministries, every time we're doing that, we're laying up treasures in heaven. Jesus made it clear. Don't lay up treasure for yourself on the earth where moth, rust, thieves break in and steal. He said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, I'm not looking to extract anything out of you. And I can say that with integrity. I'm not trying to do that. I just want us to get the heart. I want us to grow. I want us to know how much God is for us. He says to the Philippians, he says, I'm not trying to get anything from you. I'm looking for that which may be credited to your account against that day. God is so for us. He wants to make the connection between our lives and this world and this ultimate final reality in the next. There's a lot of mystery there. I don't understand. I just need to be honest. So let's wrap up and just realize that this, these over-the-top promises from God and this commitment to anchor us and secure us, that He's so, he's so for us. Let's just remind ourselves that the way He tells us to live, He says to economically empower people, He says, first of all, do good. Do good. Use your money in a way that helps people. Secondly, be rich in good deeds. Don't just throw your money into things. Get involved personally with your own muscle. And finally, be liberal and generous. Be open-handed, not fearful. Let the operating system kick in. Not fearful because, oops, I better manage everything. God says, no, no, I richly provide you with everything for your enjoyment. And you've never, ever seen a hearse with a trailer, have you? And what Paul's saying, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And here's the point. You lose nothing when you've given it and sown into the kingdom of God because there's a connection. God is, is using it as a foundation. And I think I'm going to just close it there. Here's the good news. God, our Father in heaven, seems to know everything we need. And He 
understands the season we've been through in the last couple of years of COVID. And this passage came to me alive out of this. I started to think, what does God want to do? I think He wants to anchor us. He wants to secure us. He wants to free us from anxieties. And He wants to give us the right foundations for the life that is truly life. And we know the right foundation is Jesus Christ Himself. It's the gospel. And uh, for the sake of time, I'd love us just to bow our heads in prayer. And I'd love just to close out in prayer and then hand back to Dan, to to Doug. Yeah, Lord, thank you for the privilege of worshiping and sharing in the Word of God with brothers and sisters and friends and everyone in the room. Thank you that you seem to know us better than we know ourselves and you have a way of getting behind just all the stuff that makes us fearful and anxious. Thank you that we don't have to be anxious about our sins or even patterns of selfishness that have kicked into our lives because of fear, because we can call on your name and we can ask for your forgiveness. You have a way by the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God of just planting these fresh seeds into us where we're raising our white flags of surrender to your superior wisdom that we can say no to all those other louder voices and uh, yield to the kindest, most gracious, uh, loving, fatherly voice imaginable. So I'm asking and inviting you, Lord, won't you ravish our hearts freshly uh, with your commitment to us? Won't you, by your precious promises, uh, burn off our lives those fears and phobias around the future. Won't you remind us then we are richer in Jesus than we could ever imagine that you have added by sheer mercy, Lord, so much to our lives. Uh, Won't you please, by the Holy Spirit, uh, serve notice on our immaturity. Lord, I want to ask you, won't you help us to to increasingly desire to be like you in the way you're at work in the world. Uh, We want that level of maturity. Lord, won't you help us to make the adjustments so we're not eating our seed and uh, indirectly hurting and harming ourselves. And Lord, won't you pour out your blessing and grace on this community as it says yes to its mandate in the world? And may what, they've, what we've all heard today empower and commission us into that. All this for the glory of your name. And again, Lord, for our friends who are exploring faith, we just want to say, may something of what they've heard this morning prove compelling. And uh, yeah, we just say yes to you. We, we, we love you. We want more of you in our lives. We've got so much to learn. We bless you in Jesus' name.